Welcome to the TAGT Podcast. Come along as we work to connect the GT community and explore new ways to meet the unique needs of gifted individuals. This is the TAGT Podcast. This podcast was recorded at the TAGT Annual Conference, GIFTED 22. Hello and welcome to the Texas Association for the Gifted and Talented Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Fluche. A special thank you to our sponsor, Renzuli Learning. Check them out and get your free trial at RenzuliLearning.com. Today we're chatting with instructional professor in the Department of Educational Psychology at Texas A&M, Joyce Juntun. She currently teaches graduate and undergraduate courses in educational psychology, child development, intelligence, and creativity. Her current research focus is on building academic success in high-ability students raised in poverty through instructional change. Welcome. Thank you. We're so glad to have you. This is great. I love talking to experts in the field, and, and hopefully every listener gets to hear a little bit about you and your experience and walks away a little encouraged from our conversation. Uh, let's start off with what you're tackling here at Gift Ed this year. You are covering memory. So tell me a little bit about why you chose that topic of memory and, 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 and the importance of that, especially right now. Okay. Well, as uh, you know, I have been quite interested in bright children who are in poverty. And uh, one of the things that we learned from several years of research in El Paso uh, was many of our children that are raised in poverty struggle with memory. And there's not a lot of information to help people understand um, what they can do, like how does memory work, and what can you do to help a child improve the memory? Because mm -hmm. one of the things I kind of tease my students about, you can learn, you can hear all kinds of things, but if you don't remember it, it's mm -hmm. going to impact your learning. And so um, I just decided that I would just do a session kind of focus on um, how does memory work and what are things and strategies and techniques that you can use to help a child mm. improve their memory, which therefore will improve their learning. Right, right. And so, and I, and I appreciate that through the lens of gifted education. Do you think that there's maybe a particular importance for this population of students in particular? Well, children from poverty, um, when we test them, they have a high nonverbal memory, but they have a very low verbal memory. And mm. schools and classrooms are filled with verbal. And so if they don't have a high verbal memory, um, it doesn't matter that if they cover it, they will not be able to retain it. And if they can't retain it, then it will um, impact them in the assessment. It will also impact them in not having the foundation as each year goes by mm. um, to remember that. And so, and we did find that when we um, worked with children on specific types of techniques, that um, the teachers would find that their memory was there and they could, then next year, they could actually remember something from the previous year. Wow, okay. So, I mean, I think that probably strikes pretty close to the heart of a lot of teachers and seeing that of like, oh, okay, I have some students in that space. What are maybe some, what are some, maybe some tips of how to get started, of, of how to think about, okay, how does that look like in my classroom and what are some maybe areas that teachers can do or move into to try to, to address that? 
Well, one of the things that we know is that, again, um, children that have been raised in poverty do have a high nonverbal. So you can use visuals. But it's not the teacher using the visuals, the student mm. creating the visual. So, I mean, I do all of this in my classes at Texas A&M all of the time. I do the very same types of strategies, you know, um, make three boxes. Here is the labels for them. Now, after we talk each one, create a visual that helps you understand what this is. You know, turn to your partner and explain why that visual is going to help you remember that. Mm. And it's funny because um, some of the students said at the end of, of um, we're ending the semester, they go, that helps so much when you do it. So I think one of the downsides with gifted is sometimes um, gifted students that are not from poverty, other gifted students, they have a good rote type of memory, but they don't have an understanding. And so mm. therefore, they just try to memorize a lot of things, but they realize that they have lacked in actually comprehending and, uh, and so I think that's what my students are saying to me at A&M, is that to have a way to help me actually learn something instead of just trying to fill mm -hmm. my mind. Right. And I love that there's college students who just for themselves, it's not even, I mean, obviously this is applying to, I guess we can go down to lower elementary, but also I, it's, it, it strikes me too that college kids are saying, oh, I need this to help me remember better. And I'm sure that leads to some really cool conversations. Yeah, because um, they're used to the fact that they're able to get by in a way. Right. I mean, that's the downside of gifting is that they learn poor study habits. <laughs> they learn how to get by because um, they learn quickly. Mm-hmm. And I laugh. I have students that say to me, um, oh, I went all the way through high school and I did my work between my classes and I tried to do that at college. It's not working. So <laughs> my assignment's not done. And I thought, yep. In high school, they got by with the fact of that I can just do it quickly between right. classes. And right. all at once, college was a shock. Right. It's a, oh, wait a second, I can't get away with this anymore because I do feel like that's, especially if we're talking about our students who are identified as gifted, sometimes they see these things as games that they can play. Yes. And, you know, they figured out how to get by, so to speak. But, but you're right, that depth of understanding, which is maybe the most important part is we're preparing people to go out in the world and be contributors and leaders and creatives. If they don't have that depth of understanding, if they're just playing the game, we may not be able to to have our, our future leaders of tomorrow, I guess. Well, and because another area that I'm always interested in is uh, creative and critical thinking. And so we say we want students to do that, but many times our gifted students don't do that because mm. they're, they, they don't take the time to do that kind of thinking because they know once again they can get by. It is a game. It is a game of how do I do what I need to do to get the next grade or get the next whatever. And, um, mm -hmm. and I mean, you know, one thing about gifted, it's, uh, it's, it's the fun, but the um, uh, challenge in a way is if they are interested in something, yes, they will dig, they will spend the time and do it. If they're not interested in it, it's called, what's the least I need to do to get by? Mm -hmm. And... Um, so, yeah, we, we know that, and it's just kind of funny to watch. <laughs> right, right. 
Okay, so that, and that, I feel like I've got so many questions for you, but I want to take a step back and just get to know a little bit about your journey of how you ended up being a professor here at Texas A&M. Uh, and I know that you didn't start here in the great state of Texas, but otherwise, so t tell us a little bit about uh, just kind of your educational career. Um, well, I jokingly tell my students, um, when I uh, got out of college, I decided I wanted to teach first grade because I, I thought the math would not be above me. <laughs> so, so I went into first grade, and um, and then uh, so I taught in Minnesota for a while, and then um, I moved to California because my husband was in the military, and that was my first experience with migrant children, mm. and I hadn't, I had no idea what that was like, and. It was. I absolutely loved them, but I also started to see the whole thing where they were transient students, so they could be in six or seven schools during the same year. And um, you had turnover, just turnover all the time. You never knew if a student was going to be there or not. And so, um, so that was a whole experience of, of really, um, I think, paying attention to how do you... Um, hook into where the students are. And uh, that was the great thing. In fact, it's kind of funny in today's world, this wouldn't go. But um, at that time, there had to be one teacher in every school who could understand Spanish. And then um, if uh, the student couldn't understand English, you made some notes of what you wanted, and then at when that teacher had time, you would go with the student to this teacher, and the teacher would translate for you what you were trying to say and to the student what they were trying to say, and then you go back to your classroom. I'm just laughing today. I'm thinking with all the bilingual, I can't believe we had <laughs> one, one teacher. Yeah. And, um, and that's when I started to come up with the... Um, strategy I use now called mind sketching where I would have students make simple pictures of what they were thinking and then we go find the, uh, the Spanish words for them and so then we could find the English words for them okay. to do it. And then while I was in California, um, integration came to California. So I taught in the first um, integrated classroom in, in California. And then, uh, and I will say I had some questions about that because when I had the children within their community and within their culture, and we were able to um, do a lot of things within the community, um, it, it just it made the teaching more vibrant. The next year, there were four or five of these dotted in my class and they'd been bussed across town. Their parents could never get to the school. It was too far away. They just sat there. They had no vibrancy to them because they felt so out of it. And so I know I kept saying to myself, this isn't right. I understand the purpose, but this isn't right because these students are missing out a lot on it. Um, so then I eventually came back to, um, to, well, actually, while I was in California was my first introduction to Gifted when um, Dr. Mary Meeker came to the school and started to talk to us about Gifted. And so I went, oh, okay, you know, that, that's it. Now my sister, my younger sister is very, very bright. And um, everything, as she went through school, everything they did was the wrong thing. And it really wrecked her for life. 
Oh, wow. And, um, and I remember, I didn't know what gifted was. I just know that when I put my foot in the classroom the very first day, I said to myself, I will never do to a child what happened to my sister. Hmm. So then when Dr. Meeker came and I started to understand what this was, um, then it was kind of putting some pieces together. And um, so then later I came back to uh, Minnesota and I had an excellent principal that I always said was the right principal at the right time of my teaching career. And in Minnesota, they don't call it gifted. They call it students of a high potential. Hmm. And um, I was working late one night in my classroom, <laughs> as we often do. That's right, yeah. And the principal came by and he said, oh, I am so sorry to bother you. But he said, you know, I just remembered that all the school districts are supposed to send someone to White Bear Lake to talk about high potential programs. And I forgot to ask, would you by, please, please, would you just go to that meeting for us? And I went, <laughs> sure, why not? <laughs> so I went and that's how, and then they were doing this North Suburban Area Association and then our, and then I got tied into the Minnesota group and then it just kind of went from there. So it was, um, uh, and we did a huge uh, creative thinking program in our school and um, as one of the ways of enriching our students. Um, so, uh, yeah, so. Yeah, could I ask you a little bit about that? Uh, and I love just this passion for creative and critical thinking. Uh, tell me a little bit about your experience with that. I think I even saw that you worked at a place called the Creative uh, Problem Solving Institute. So you must bring a lot of experience there. Oh, yeah, that was that principal again. He, uh, <laughs> he sent his other teacher, myself, to the Creative Problem Solving Institute. And we thought, oh, my word, what is he sending us here for? And, uh, and so we went there, and everyone there was not an educator except us. And we went, ew. But, <laughs> you know, he knew what he was doing because about midway through the week, he stopped by. And he said, so how is it doing? So the first couple of days would have been bad. If he stopped by then, we would have said, what are we doing here? But by the middle of the week, we said, we think we could do this in our school. And he goes, yeah, okay, bring it back. Let's see what we can do. And, and, so, uh, and so we did. But he again, um, and one of the things that I learned about the, how he got us involved, sometimes... People have people come in and do what I call demonstration lessons, and they're so wowy. Everyone goes, "Isn't that wonderful? I can never do it." Hmm. And this principal was so smart because he brought in Joanne Seguini from Utah, and she was going around to doing things in classrooms. And she was in my classroom. I was second grade at the time, and she he he came by and he said, "So how's it going?" And I go, "Mr. Bronis." It's easy. I could do it. He said, of course you can. Now go do it. Hmm. And every time he had anything demonstrated for us, it was demonstrated in the easiest, simplest way that we felt we could do it. And I cannot tell you the number of times for professional development I see someone come in and try to wow a teacher instead of instruct a teacher. Hmm. Yeah. And so... 
our whole school. It was just wonderful. And after that, principal was gone, and other those, all of those teachers in that school have still used all these techniques for the rest of their educational career. So they weren't just a flash in the pan. Mm-mm. I got, I showed up to like a show and, and felt good about it. It yeah. was a, I built the skills and maybe the systems, the processes to be able to uh, kind of endure and, and, and apply these in a meaningful way for kids. Well, and again, he was smart. <laughs> in fact, people have said to me, you should write the book Mr. Brana says, because I often say, Mr. Brana said. <laughs> Mr. <Brana> said. <laughs> but <coughs> one of the things that he told us <coughs> was when you go to do something new, you apply it in the area where you're most comfortable first. So if you like teaching history, put it in history. If you like teaching math, put it in math. He said what people do sometimes is they get new techniques and they try to put them in the area they don't like, hoping it will perk it up. Mm. And he said, no, you do that three years later. The first year, you put it in the area you love. The second year, you branch out a little, but you still really work in the area you love. By the third year, you say, okay, now I can't stand to teach that unit on fractions. That's where I'm going to put it. Mm-hmm. And, and he was so right. And I think that's why we all embraced it so much, was that we got it going in the areas that we love teaching. So perhaps for, for teacher success, I, I, I feel like there's this mentality of if you have, uh, if, you know, the success breeds success a strength-based approach mm-hmm. of you take something like this, you, you maybe go to a gifted 22, and when you go back, you try to find areas of strengths and make them stronger and let that kind of permeate everything else. Yes, because, well, and I will say this, you will find it easier to incorporate new ideas in the area where you're already thinking in a variety of ways. And I think that that's what the key is is that um, I already love to teach that area anyway. So it's kind of fun. Oh, look, I can use this. I'll tweak it this way, tweak it that way. And that gives you the the skill you need to now say, how do I help me tackle another area? Yeah, okay. And and you are equipping teachers at Texas A&M all the time, I figure. So I feel like you probably have a lot of just kind of firsthand experience of of walking with them and, and, and tell me a little bit about what that's like and, 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 and kind of sharing your, was it Mr. Bronis? Is that what it was? Mr. Bronis. Bronis. <laughs> seeing the impact as that's going on to the next generation mm-hmm. of teachers. Well, and uh, most of those I have in either an educational psychology course or in a child development. It was really funny because when I taught an undergrad educational psychology course, one of the students said to me, I keep two notebooks. One is for all the different teaching techniques you're using, and the other is for all the content we're studying. Oh, wow. And um, I thought that was pretty perceptive, that student, to realize that I was using a whole variety of mm-hmm. techniques, and she wanted to pick all of those up because she realized that that would, that would really help. Yeah, that's powerful. Now I'm trying to think if you're using any teaching strategies to me right now <laughs> and taking notes as we go. Um, well, very cool. And so going back to kind of your research focus and uh, when it comes to and I'm kind of building off some of the things that I saw earlier on building academic success and high ability students raised in poverty through instructional change. Um, yes. Teachers who are listening, what are you noticing uh, from your research that, that 
that maybe they can start to take and maybe think about or start to reflect upon in their practice to be able to do that? Well, probably the key is, you know, visualize, verbalize. Because uh, once again, well, here's what we thought found was interesting. We started to work with them um, was that some children, though visualization was their power, that was their strength in a way, they felt that they couldn't do it because some people have teachers who will say, no, 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 just words, just words. Mm. And we go, no, you know, we want to let them do that. Um, one, one of the schools in El Paso was funny because one of the instructional coaches that would come along didn't like any diagrams, which I don't understand why really? they wouldn't. But yes, isn't that weird? And so we'd say to the students, okay, take a second sheet of paper and put alongside your notebook and make your diagrams there and then don't turn that in when you're turning <laughs> your notebook. <laughs> so I've been known for one that um, instruct students how to get around the rules. <laughs> right. Yes. Well, and, and that makes me think as you're talking about this, you know, I mean, that's fascinating that a teacher would, would be uh, not wanting to do that. Are there barriers out there that teachers are struggling with in terms of uh, being able to implement these things? Well, here's what I, here's where I think, of, you know, I'm the old lady in the house, so I have a long history <laughs> of what's happened in education. So here's what I think happens. We're in this place now where we try to say, oh, let's take this wonderful lesson this teacher does, and let's all copy it. Right. And I was privileged to come into education at the time when we were encouraged to try things. And if it didn't work, it didn't work. You tried something else. And so our creativity was really encouraged. Today, a teacher's creativity is not encouraged. I've had some of the students come back and say to me, I could tell the students needed two extra days on that. And my principal said, you can't have two extra days on that. You're only allowed this many days on that. It's like we have this idea that instead of teaching to your personality, that you're supposed to all teach like some good teacher I saw. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and actually, as far as creativity goes, um, you know, there's some interesting research that shows that creative people will not be as creative if they copy. <laughs> right. They'll be creative if they create. Right. So I look at this and I go, I feel badly when teachers go out and they try to make them into like some other teacher instead of saying, no, learn how to teach. It's your art. You... you Try something. If it doesn't work, try something else. We'll, we'll give you that. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's where teachers get caught in this, what I can and cannot do, because instructional leaders often have guidelines that are by some, I don't know, perfect lesson or something that they right. saw. And it makes me wonder, too, can teachers create those Renzulli creative, productive students, right? Uh, uh, students with potential, you know, manifesting that through being a creative, productive. Can we get there with teachers who are not encouraged to also be creatives, right? Yeah, and that's you know, it's interesting because when I do professional development on it, it's the fact that, to be honest, and I found this in the work we did back at that school, that the teacher 
who develops his or her own creativity will do a better job of developing the creativity in their students. Mm. The teachers who's going through the motions will only get a certain level. But it's, it's kind of like you can't take the students beyond where you are. And so that's why, and that principal was smart in the fact of really getting us to, to be these kinds of thinkers ourselves. I mean, our, our learning about creativity in that school was part of our faculty meetings. So we had 15-minute segments in every single faculty meeting. It said, this is one of the creative thinking skills we're working on. This is what it looks like. This And then the principal used those in faculty meetings to help us solve school problems. Wow. So the teachers learned the power of it, which helped them take it back to their classroom. Right. Yeah, and I don't, yes, and I like all these programs. They're wonderful. But the teacher also has to be a creative thinking thinker to get the maximum use out of all of these programs. I think you're getting a lot of amens out there to our podcasting audience because I, I, I really do see uh, teachers wanting to probably move into that space and feel valued to be able to do that. Um, are there any words of encouragement or some next steps or things to try? Maybe it is just trying new things. But if you're a teacher who feels like maybe your creativity is maybe a little stifled, what is there anything they could do? Um, well, you know, there's two sides. One of the things that I often say to teachers, you need your own creative endeavors. I don't care, you can write a book, you can get into theater, you can join the local music group, but you need your own creative outlets. You don't want your classroom to be your own creative outlet because if you do, you will overpower all of the students. So. Wow. You need your own creative outlets that you can share in a way so that the students can also realize that we all have our creative outlets where we do things that we enjoy, that creativity comes out. And, um, and then, yeah, I mean, I, I am in the fact of put um, creative thinking strategies into all of your lessons um, and just look at what what students can um, can come up with. There is a, a wonderful little strategy that we use in one of our creativity classes, and I love it. It's when, <clears throat> when a student gives an answer, you say, okay, that's the first right answer. Where's the second right mm. answer? Where's the third right answer? Where's the fourth right answer? Where's the fifth right answer? And just that alone is... Um, a fun kind of strategy to that, use. That type of divergent thinking, it's a multitude of ideas, yeah. right? And I feel like there's comes a point, and I kind of, this really connects with me, I love that sort of work with kids and myself as well, and, and I feel like there comes a point in that ideation process where you run out and you almost have to teach yourself, well, what do you do when you run out of ideas? How do you keep provoking ideas? Is there something in your mind that's preventing you from sharing an idea that maybe is the best idea. You know, you, yeah. there, there's something really, I really enjoy that process. But, I mean, that's probably one of the most common strategies is like the use of an object or the use of a, uh, you know, the random um, entry type of thing, the random yeah. trigger. Um, just, you know, look around and say, well, the design in the carpet, what ideas does that give me? Is there any way I can apply that to that? I mean, I used yeah. to teasingly, say that when I first started to teach, my parents lived about two hours away. And when I would drive home on the weekend, I would 
um, look at everything outside the car to help to solve some problem I was dealing with in school. Mm, that tree, look at those branches. I wonder what ideas I could get from the way that branch is twisted. Oh, look over there. Look at how that house is. And so I would just use triggers from everything outside the car while I was driving to give yeah. me new insights and in what to do. I love that. And that makes me think of driving around my kids and you see the clouds and what does that make you think of, right? Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and so there's maybe an element uh, of an encouragement here to parents of, of, of inspiring this critical thinking or, or, or creative thinking mm -hmm. is something that we could be doing frequently and, and, and it could really impact your kids long term. Oh, yeah. One of the common ones I give to parents all the time is um, just take, you know, different objects. So if they're setting the table, say, okay, so what else can you use a fork for except to uh, eat food? <laughs> what are three other, three other uses for the fork? Or what are three other uses for the spoon? Just doing that kind of thing on mm -hmm. objects that are just common. You're making me think of Little Mermaid. What was it? A dingle hopper was the fork? <laughs> Sorry, I only have that, Disney that, movie that, references <laughs> here today, but... Uh, <laughs> But that's great. Okay, so you're man. So you you've got a breadth of experience here with with improving memory and addressing that with critical and creative thinking. Are there other topics within, uh, especially students, whether it's with gifted or within ed educational psychology, that really capture your imagination that you've really learned a lot through your your career? Um, I I think probably the thing um, that I learned the most is. Um, tying what's going on to the interests of a student and finding out what the student is interested in. Um, and I often talk about um, my, my little uh, Randy that I had in school and he didn't want to do the uh, regular work that we were doing and that we were studying insects and whatever. And, but he loved World War II and he was reading all about World War II. And so it just you know dawned on me and so I went, Randy, I have a special assignment for you. I want you to take one of the battlegrounds of World War II and look at the climate that's there, look at the temperature that's there, and tell me what insects would most likely live there and why. Oh, wow. Oh, he was anxious to do that. That was just great. <laughs> oh, and then, by the way, Randy, one of those that are there, could you diagram it out with the parts? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. you got to get the standards in there, you know? Yeah. yeah. So I, I just um, I gifted kids especially and highly creatives, um, they just, if something doesn't connect to their interest, um, they, they don't get the value of the learning out of it. And, um, and I mean, I've even, uh, at A&M, one of my funny ones at A&M was, I was, I remember these students, at, um, and in fact, it reminds me of kind of where we're, we're sitting in the fact I had a big science lab table and they were all on that side and I'm on this side teaching. And this student is kind of whatever. And then I said something about being a farm girl. And this student perked up and he said, so what kind of a tractor did you drive? And I said, oh, we had the Farmall tractors, not the John Deere's. We had a Farmall. He said, oh. So then it dawned on me. So after that, I would throw in a reference between the child development stuff I was teaching. And I would say, you know, and then he came up after class and told me, that he collected antique tractors. Oh, wow. And so I found out some different kinds of tractors that he had. So wouldn't you know, child <laughs> development got connected to antique tractors. <laughs> really? Yeah. And try to infuse that into what you did, huh? Yes. And sometimes I go the other way and I'll say, okay, 
Um, how is an antique tractor like emotional development of a child? Hmm, there's some and depth of thinking go, there. Okay, I can take that on. So that, to me, is like the most powerful thing we have as teachers is to tie into the interests. And that really makes me think, too, we talk a lot about building relationships with kids and the impact of that on, I feel like, I feel like they're, they're, you're kind of taking that a step further of, of knowing your students in a meaningful way to find out their interests to inform what you're then going to do with the students. That's, it's almost a differentiation said in a, in a more nuanced way, right? And I, and, a, and I can only imagine the impact that that has on students when they know that their interests and, and maybe they are being valued in that way. And you know what? It helps with discipline. Hmm. And my wonderful principal taught me that. Those were the days we had three by five cards, not Excel sheets on uh, uh, computers. But we were supposed to keep a little box on our desk with a three by five card and every time, and we were supposed to add to it all the time. If Randy told me that he went on a camping trip, I pulled out his card and went, went on a camping trip, Yeah, whatever. And I remember I had a trouble with this, a problem with this student and I went down to Mr. Bronis and I said, I'm having trouble with um, Jerry and I don't know if I should send him down to you or what I should do. He said, um, bring me um, Jerry's card. Okay, I went back down to my thing and I brought Jerry's card and he looked at it and he said, do you realize it's been two months since you added anything Jerry was interested to this card? He said, um, I'd be more than happy to deal with him, but I think you better uh, get to know him better. Wow. <laughs> I went back. I had special, uh, paid more special attention to Jerry when he was interested, so I got a few more things. Tied some lessons to the things that was interesting, and guess what happened? I didn't have the discipline problem anymore. Right. So I'm sure that was a piercing piece of feedback, but also I feel like an actionable piece of feedback. What I needed to hear right. wow. was don't just go down to him when I hadn't been doing my job. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to take a break, but stick around to hear what our speaker has to say next. Are you ready to celebrate our GT community during GT Awareness Week, April 3rd through 7th, 2023? GT Awareness Week was created to increase awareness and encourage support of gifted education in Texas. Want to celebrate but not quite sure how? Visit txgifted.org slash gtawarenessweek to download the TAGT celebration guides made specifically for you to help you celebrate. Through online community discussions and social media posts, parents, educators, and advocates come together to celebrate giftedness. Make sure to tag and follow us at TXGifted on Twitter and Instagram and TexasGifted on Facebook to show how you're celebrating your GT community April 3rd through 7th. See you there! Well, this is great. Uh, I feel like there's so much here for us to chew on, and as we start to kind of keep, we're not wrapping up quite yet, but uh, as people are listening, whether it's a teacher or a parent or a, 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 a GT coordinator out there, I just want them to get to know you a little bit better. So I've got my fast five questions here. They're not supposed to, you know, go on forever. Just some quick, fun questions to get to know Joyce a little bit better. You ready? Okay. <laughs> You've got a Saturday to do anything. This is question one. What do you do and why? Oh, I putz around out in my back little wild area. <laughs> I 
I always kind of laugh this little wild area behind my house that it's my little farm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because um, the manicured lawn is on the inside the fence, but I have this piece yeah. on the outside the fence that I just putz around, do the things I want out there, make little um, uh, shelters for the stray cats that need to get out of the weather and plant the milkweeds for the butterflies. And anyhow, I just monkey around out in that little wild area. See, you didn't know, but I'm, t I'm pulling out my three by five. I'm writing down Joyce, <laughs> farmer. Yep, uh, yeah, there I'm you a go. Farmer. <laughs> All right, question number two. If you had to describe yourself as a cartoon character or TV show character, who would it be and why? Oh. Oh. <laughs> that, that told me a lot right there. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Wait a second. Yeah, yeah. I would probably, I mean, I'd probably go back to the Charlie Brown stuff and I'd say, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe Lucy, maybe. <laughs> um, um, That's great. Yeah, because, I mean, Lucy was always trying to help people out and I was trying to do things with everybody, so that's maybe right. that's who it would be. <laughs> I think that's a great fit. Uh, question three If you could tell an earlier version of yourself one thing about how you learn, what would you tell them? If you could tell an earlier version of Joyce. Yeah, um, I actually, um, I actually learn by trying things out, to be honest. Um, and I need the freedom. I need the freedom to try something. Yeah. What, and I feel like that, that right there is encouraging to teachers of what, what are we doing to give kids the freedom to be able to do that. Uh, obviously, Mr. Branis, Branis, Bra Branis. I'm going to get it right by the end of That's this podcast. Okay. That's all right. <laughs> Mr. Branis gave you some freedom, and clearly it's had a huge impact on you and your career. Uh, okay, I feel like I know the answer to this question. Question number four, who has been an inspiration in your educational career? Well, yes, Mr. Branis has, <laughs> of course. Um, but also, uh, you know, some of the early movers and shakers, and, and one of them was John Gowan. And John Gowan was a professor out in um, Northfield. And um, he was in National Association for Gifted. And he's the one that actually got me into the National Association for Gifted. And, um, and eventually to become executive director of that. And it, I didn't, I mean, I saw... Mr. Bronis gave me a lot of guidance and inspiration about being an educator. John Gowan forced me to um, spread my wings. And I, I remember when the job came up with National Association, and I, I didn't, he said, aren't you going to apply? And I said, no, no. And he sat me down, at, we were at a conference outside the hotel, and he said, Something you should always remember. You should apply for things, even if you don't think you want them, because you can always withdraw. But you can't apply after it's over. Mm. So you should apply, and if you decide in the end you want to withdraw, then you can do that. But why would you not keep your options open? Well, see, that was an interesting, and I've thought of that many times, keeping the options open. That's great advice. Uh, question number five. If you had to tell teachers to do one thing to develop student potential, what would it be? Um, develop their creativity. Yeah. <laughs> really, develop their creativity. 
and allow them to develop their creativity. Don't, don't um, uh, be suppressive in a way. I mean, uh, we had a wonderful teacher in our school, and she was really great, but the kids were more her audience because she was the one that was a performer all the time in the room. And so one of the things that I soon realized was when you let the students become the creative performers and instead of you becoming the performer, that brings out their potential because then they, again, will try things they hadn't tried before, take risks they haven't taken before. And I always kind of uh, tell my students, I'm your biggest cheerleader. Mm. Mm. I think that's a great way to start to wrap this up. If our, our listeners wanted to find out more about you, Joyce, uh, where could they do that? Could, you, could they find you on social media or via email or website anywhere? Probably through Texas A&M. Go to just Google Texas A&M and we'll, we'll find you. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, well, I, I don't even know how that all works. In, but, uh, but that's where people have found me is they find me yes. by uh, going to I, the Texas A&M. I found you there so I can speak to that firsthand. So that okay. would be great. Joyce, it's been a, a pleasure having you on the podcast. Uh, thanks again to our guest today, Joyce. Uh, we're so glad you could join us. If you're interested in learning more about today's guest and their work, check out the links included with this podcast post. And if you're not yet a member of Texas Association for the Gifted and Talented, we hope you'll join our community by visiting txgifted.org and clicking on the Join tab. Anzuli Learning is proud to support the Texas Association for the Gifted, their podcast and gifted education nationwide. Be sure to visit our website at RanzuliLearning.com and sign up for your free trial to experience firsthand how we deliver a rigorous, personalized learning environment for all students pre-K through 12, and how we align our resources to the TEKS and provide student-driven project-based learning that unpacks the natural passions and abilities in all children.